I'm John Doberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2018 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Strategies for Getting Off the Starting Block with Cover Crops Part 1, is brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. I'd like to take a moment to thank Montag Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts. Montag's Precision Fertilizer Placement Solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. A major supporter of agronomic education, Montag is a title sponsor of each of our four ag events per year, and their sponsorship of this podcast allows us to share meaningful knowledge with you via audio as well. Visit their website today at www.montagmfg.com or call 712 752-4572. While cover crop seeding has been growing by leaps and bounds in the no-till community in the last several years, getting them established can be a challenge, even for the most seasoned no-tillers. In the first part of this two-part podcast series, cover crop educator and Pennsylvania no-tiller Steve Groff will talk about the mindset necessary to be successful in adopting cover crops in a no-till system and the types of questions no-tillers need to ask themselves about their operation before venturing forward with covers. He'll also discuss what cover crops are good options for no-tillers who desire species that winter kill and don't require termination, and strategies for getting them seeded in colder northern climates with shorter planting windows. Steve, tell me a little bit about yourself and what you're currently working on as as a cover crop coach. Well, I started Cover Crop Coach back in the beginning of 2016, and that my primary part of uh, what I do there is my focus is training the trainers, in other words, those who interact with farmers, basically, and I, I see there's just a need there to be able to get good cover crop information to those who do interact directly with the farmers who are interested in using cover crops. So. That would be with the NRCS, Conservation Districts, and um, you know other people who, who are trying to influence and affect uh, the, the expansion of cover crops. I also do some private consulting. Uh, that's been uh, very strategically aimed at large farms, uh, primarily in uh, Europe and Australia, uh, been brought in to have some private meetings and that has been something I've uh, really enjoyed, where, where I go and spend a day at a farm and, get, and learn to know what they're doing, what their objectives are, and then provide some recommendations and follow-up and so forth. So also cover crop coaching is speaking anywhere from local cover crop cafes, or as we call them here in Pennsylvania, town halls, where you might have five farmers or 25 farmers uh, during the winter and just to chat about what's working in cover crops. But I also do keynote speeches like at large events and so forth. So that's pretty much the cover crop coaching part. Then I started another kind of, uh, you might want to call it a subsidiary of that, is my cover crop innovators group. 
And that's basically a subscription-based group where you pay an annual fee to join. And uh, I do a weekly live webinar that all the subscribers can tune into and, and listen to. And uh, during that live webinar, or I should say at the end of that, I open it up to any questions associated with the topic or any other cover crop question that they want to talk about. And we'll have a discussion among ourselves on that live webinar. Uh, that webinar is then is, is recorded and archived, so any of the subscribers then, if they can't make the live webinar, they can listen to it uh, at any time. So I've been doing this for a while now. I have over 50 uh, cover crop training webinars, so it's kind of uh, the value, you might say, is growing by the week. And I currently have 162 members uh, in my group. But if uh, you want to join, you instantly get access to over 50 cover crop training webinars. The primary profile of the people who join is those who are ready, committed to cover crops. Uh, we're not trying to convince people about cover crops. This is for people who are already, they've already committed to it. So either you're a farmer, you're doing it, and you want to take it a step further, or you're an educator or an influencer that you uh, want to know how you can get answers to farmers. And um, as a bonus, then, we have a closed Facebook group, which we can have discussion, and that can be, of course, 24-7, essentially. And uh, just having the dynamic of a broad spectrum, literally from around the world, is, uh, is, is quite beneficial to everyone. And I like to say that this uh, Cover Crop Innovators group is convenient, in-depth, and down-to-earth cover crop training. It's not so much about me being the, the teacher or the trainer or the educator. It's more about what are we learning together as a community. I see myself as, a, as more of a bridge builder. Let's get on to our questions here about cover crop adoption. Uh, everyone had to start no-tilling at some point, mm -hmm. and there's always a challenge in adapting to a new way of doing things. When it comes to adopting cover crops in a no-till rotation, what are five mindsets that successful cover croppers have in common, do you think? The, the first one I think that I have, have thought about would be for the farmer to be willing to strategically try a new practice. And that word strategically is the most important word there. Um, and, and I'll just say that if you're just planting cover crops because you're getting some equip money or money from the state and you're just trying to fulfill some sort of regulation, the, the chances of you benefiting from that cover crop are probably very small. But if you're willing to strategically embrace the opportunity, uh, the new practice, uh, there's plenty of information out there, probably in most everyone's neighborhoods, if not on the internet and, and where to, to, to be able to get that uh, information that you need. Um, the second one I'll mention is that all-in total commitment. Uh, it's, cover cropping is a very simple concept. I think almost everyone would say it's good. That being said, it's very complex to be able to pull off successfully. So you need to be all-in, and I'll just say my my standard uh, comment in all my presentations, you need to treat your cover crops like you do your cash crops. We are all in with our cash crops because that's, that's what we survive on. And you, you have to have that same mindset, that same mentality with cover crops. And what, what that 
what that means, uh, the all-in part, is like leads to number three. You're always learning. And as I think about uh, farmers I've known who have gone from saying cover crops won't work to saying they will never do without them, and I do know people like that, uh, they're the ones who are always learning. Uh, they're showing up at the meetings, or they're they're on social media, or or they're 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 calling others, they're visiting neighbors, they're always learning, and uh, that's another again that's a mindset. Again, just like we most of us are always learning about our cash crops, uh, we're learning about our cover crops and what can we uh, learn that will that will make it more effective. For instance, the National No-Till Conference going to that. Uh, and, and not only just hearing the educational components, but meeting other farmers and discussing opportunities, what works for them, what doesn't. Uh, the, the fourth one I'll mention is understanding the risks and maybe a follow-up, not afraid to fail. This is something that is not talked about very much because nowadays you hear all the glowing stories in every magazine you pick up about how wonderful these cover crops are, and then you go to try them and, you know, it just falls flat in its face or it just doesn't work. So there are risks involved with cover crops. And I would hasten to add, just like there are risks associated with our cash crops. Now, in our cash cropping system, if we have a bad year, we don't hang it up and say, well, I'm never going to grow corn again. Uh, it was a drought this year and I lost money. Well, you have to take that that mindset of cash cropping over into the cover cropping, understand what those risks are. Some years the cover crop may not show much value. Um, that's, that's just something we have to acknowledge. And the, 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 the follow-up of not afraid to fail, um, I'm not talking about indiscriminate just going out there and uh, you know, hoping for the best, throwing some seeds out in the field uh, and having all these magical cover crop miracles take place. Uh, no, I'm talking about sometimes on a field or on an acre or just on a small plot trying or testing something you heard about. Uh, that That's what I'm talking about. The not afraid to fail part is just pushing it a little bit, but understanding the risk that anything you try should not, if it, if it does fail, should not uh, affect you very much uh, financially. And sometimes that's about just the sheer knowledge someone has. And then I would also say, finally, having the ability to adapt. And, and that's a mindset that is associated with all this information now you can get from everywhere about cover crops, uh, knowing that even what your neighbor finds successful may not be totally uh, you know, in your best interest or for your succeed, uh, for your, uh, to be able to succeed with it. And so having that ability, and this is this is where I like to say cover crop cover cropping tends to make good farmers better and bad farmers worse. And the reason I say that is that ability to adapt to their conditions, and that goes all the way down to the field level. And then I'll just throw a bonus in there of uh, another mindset of understanding where the future is going. Uh, I think uh, we all realize there's probably some regulatory stuff in the horizon. But as I'm looking now, uh, the big picture, the market or the, the big players in the market are looking at uh, farmers growing things in some sort of a manner, manner that's sustainable or regenerative or something like that. So 
I would just say, as an Illinois farmer told me once this winter, he said, we see the handwriting on the wall. Uh, we need to be looking at cover crops. So that's that's some of the, the, the things I think about on that, John, of uh, what successful mindsets are for, for cover cropping. Great, Steve. Thanks. Uh, what kinds of questions do no-tillers need to ask themselves about their own operation before they decide to add cover crops? I think the number one question that, that gets everybody out the gate would would be to uh, understand what they are trying to accomplish. And just think about that. What are you as a farmer trying to accomplish? Is it erosion control? Is it nutrient retention? Is it creating nitrogen? There, there could be several different things, and it's good to maybe prioritize them because there are many benefits that cover crops have to offer. And then the second question is, when is your planting window? What time of year is it? What typically grows well in that time? And, uh, and then that really narrows it down to what our options are. And then especially if something that your cover crop you're planting is going to survive the winter, what is your termination strategy? You want to terminate it early, something like annual ryegrass that takes a pretty specific termination strategy on how to control that, like with herbicides and so forth. So that's just some basic things I think they need to ask themselves in order to set themselves up for success. For someone who isn't comfortable or ready to terminate cover crops in the spring, what's a good option to add cover crops that will winter kill but still provide some benefits? Well, the first thing that comes to mind are, are two, radishes and oats. Now, uh, radishes typically need to be planted uh, a couple weeks before the average first killing frost in a given area, so that could be limiting. But for a farmer who is just starting out with cover crops, I, I've, I've said for a while now that radishes are cover crops with training wheels because it's, it's hard to screw them up, especially if you live in the northern regions where they're going to winter kill. They're so easy to plant into in the spring and so forth. Oats, in a, in a similar way, they'll provide a little bit more ground cover in the following spring because they don't decompose as fast. But even mixing radishes and oats is a good idea. So they're, they're some of the easiest ones. And then if you talk about something that overwinters, something like a cereal rye, which is the most popular cover crop for overwintering, not hard to kill uh, with herbicides in the spring, especially before soybeans. That would be uh, a recommendation for someone who's just wanting to jump into this whole cover crop management thing. One of the challenges no-tillers bring up a lot is that their climate is too cold or harvest is too late to do it, uh, to do cover crops. What mm -hmm. methods should they explore to get them seeded on time? What are the options out there? Yeah, I, I certainly will acknowledge that. And everywhere there's a challenge. There's always a few people that are succeeding in some manner. Uh, I would say that for the most part, cover cropping is not so much finding the missing puzzle piece. It's more of rearranging the picture. And um, I certainly understand markets, understand history of people's comfort level in growing their cash crops. And if you just look at the calendar, you say, well, there's no, no place at all for cover crops there. However, um, one of the things in the, in the colder climates, and we'll, we'll just say to use a... Um, uh, I guess a little bit of a basis here to, to for the discussion. North of Interstate 80 in the U.S. is uh, the the process of interseeding cover crops when the corn is about knee high. Uh, at that at that time, 
has shown to be successful, not so much south of I-80, but this is really convenient because those areas north, northern regions and southern Canada, they, they uh, just don't have time in the fall. And if you can get a cover crop established in corn, that it will survive the summer, and sometimes it doesn't. It gets a little too dry, or if you have super high-yielding corn on, on really, really good soil, it shades it out. I will say this, interseeding works the best on a maybe a poor soil that, that actually would need cover crops more. So this is a, a concept that is certainly gaining momentum across that region. So that's that's one of the best things to try. I, I will say that it's does it's not foolproof. Nothing's foolproof, but it is showing promise. There's all kinds of interseeder type equipment being developed. The thing that's nice is if you can actually interseed while you're side dressing nitrogen, then you're saving a trip across the field. So. And and as as historically been done, aerial seeding or high clearance equipment has worked. Uh, it's been somewhat inconsistent because you got to depend on the weather. It depends on the residue that you might have on the soil surface uh, that would prohibit the seeds from being close to soil so that they could, or on the soil so they could actually germinate. Got to have rain and so forth. But I would also say for some farmers who are really serious, uh, consider adding a small grain if that's an option that you get off maybe in late July or August, so you have that planting window that you could plant a nice mix of cover crops, even in northern areas. So for some people, I understand they they don't want to hear that, but I also heard people who have kind of recanted and uh, see all the benefits that that would give. Maybe one year you do that, and, and over over a five-year period, one year you do it in just a small small acreage, and then over, let's just say, a five-year period, that you have this uh, options, it's, it actually covers most of your farm. You can get a nice cover crop established and really do some actually quick uh, benefits to your soil in, in having that opportunity. So that's just some options that are out there. I know that there's people working on on, on different things, but that's probably the most popular ones now that, that we know about in areas with uh, shorter growing seasons. We'll rejoin my conversation with cover crop expert Steve Groff in a minute, but I wanted to take time to once again thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. A major supporter of agronomic education, Montag is a title sponsor of each of our four ag events per year, and their sponsorship of this podcast allows us to share meaningful knowledge with you via audio as well. Visit their website today at www.montagmfg.com or call 712-852-4572. Now let's get back to my conversation with cover crop educator and Pennsylvania no-tiller Steve Groff as he discusses why no-tillers should consider using a multi-species cover crop mix on their farm and the benefits these mixes bring to the table. He'll also share important information on five little-used cover crop species that he feels should be mainstream in the near future. Obviously, there are a lot of choices when it comes to cover crop species out there, and each of them bring different 
benefits to the table, why should no-tillers consider seeding multiple species of cover crops instead of just one? What are the benefits? This is something that has certainly come up over the last uh, five to ten years, the multi-species aspect. It's easy to understand in theory because we understand we see nature. Usually in a woods or a prairie situation, you'll have multiple species. So that's easy for farmers to say, you know what, that is a pretty good idea. Uh, it's really it's, it's difficult to do that in our cash crops, but out of the cash cropping sequence in a year, we have this opportunity to plant multiple species of cover crops. So, uh, again, an easy concept for farmers to understand and really not that hard to implement if you have a planting window that allows you to plant enough uh, several species in that window. So uh, some of the reasons for considering it is that different species of plants bring different things to the table. It's like you're providing a smorgasbord of food source, a smorgasbord of uh, all kinds of things that are good for not only the soil, but the, the soil life uh, from a nutrient standpoint to a biological standpoint. And a lot of times we don't think that we don't kind of have this, uh, we don't have this concept of plants are essentially food for the living part of the soil, the biology of the soil. But you know, if you're if organisms are organisms, regardless if it's, it's a microscopic uh, fungi to you know people, uh, you know we're we're alive and and generally we I just say collectively the whole scope there we need uh, diversity of nutrition, and so how do I know what specific bacteria fungi needs uh, to help them help me? And this is, again, gets kind of the, the deep end of that, but it's, again, once you explain that, it's understand why we are seeing results. And so getting back out to the farmer level, you know, we want to see results. And what we have seen is that when you have uh, multiple species uh, planted in a mix, you're going to get a synergistic effect that I like to say one plus one equals three. And you'll have the legumes will help the grasses grow, like in a mix. That's very easily to understand. They produce some nitrogen, which grasses need. So that's an easy uh, explanation of that. And you might have a little leftover for your cash crop, and nitrogen in this case. Um, and, and just uh, weed control. Uh, but I think... Another one that is important is we don't know what the weather will be um, in the six, eight, nine weeks, 12 weeks, whatever that cover crop grows. Uh, if it's on the drier side, some of the deeper rooted plants may grow better. If it's on the wetter side, the shallower rooted plants will, will grow. I've actually uh, planted a, a mixed species uh, four weeks in succession during the month of September, and you would have thought, well, looking at that, in the end of November, before um, you know, we went into winter dormancy, you would have thought that I had different seed ratios. But it's just because as the year went on, as the weeks went by, different species became more or less dominant. So it's an insurance agent, I would say. Um, you know, is 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 what mixed species will do. And and I've also heard someone say, and I thought this was pretty relevant. It's like low tech precision ag where we're covering the field that has varying 
soil types, maybe even nutritional uh, deficiencies or whatever, and some covers will do well in certain areas and others in other areas. I've actually seen this. Sometimes you have to look for it where you go across a field and you can see some species are more dominant in one part of the field and less dominant in the other part of the field. So it's basically covering our bases. And um, But I will say that uh, multiple species do not need to uh, be more costly. It, you do have to look at the price of individual species in that, and sometimes they vary from year to year. That's another point to, to use multiple species to kind of hedge against uh, some price variations. But the seeding rates is where you can save money. You can lower your seeding rates when you start mixing things together. And uh, that has shown uh, lots of benefits. So it's been essentially uh, proven out there. Uh, people ask me sometimes, well, how many should I have? I see guys using 12, 15, 20 uh, way mixes. Um, and I'll just say from the, I've done probably hundreds of research plots that have looked at mixed species. And uh, the, the subsequent yield results that I have seen in corn or soybeans kind of start plateauing after you mix five or six species together. That, I mean, I've seen some good results from a 12-way, uh, but you don't get the jump from a 1 to a 6 like you do from a 6 to a 12-way mix. And that's just some of my observations. Um, you don't have to have a 12-way. If there's reason for it, yes, I, I can I could justify that. But um, So, yeah, it's kind of a long-winded answer there, but mixed species are certainly a trend within the cover cropping community. Great. Thanks for sharing that, Steve. Uh, tell our listeners about five little-used cover crop species that you feel should be mainstream. Well, this is a, a, a question that I get asked sometimes, you know, what are some, for, primarily from the, the guys who want to, you know, the, they want to push the envelope a little bit. And from my travels, um, primarily Europe and Australia, I have seen some other crops that are more popular in those areas than it tends to be here in, in the States and Canada. So I have thought about several of the ones that I feel should bring be more popular. And put, There's reasons for some of these. Uh, and before I explain what they are, some of them is just sheer uh, production availability because the seed farmers, those who grow seeds, they're not going to invest in a certain species until they know there's a market for it. And so that's kind of like there needs to be a certain amount of demand, and then you have a few people uh, entering that market, and then they can produce them in a way that's cheaper than what they may have been because a, 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 a seed that's not been utilized very much may have been utilized for something else, and it's just more expensive. And so that's been a deterrent. Uh, in that regard. So I'll just lay that foundation out, uh, but as these minor species tend to become more popular, we'll see we'll see more and more, uh, uh, I guess you say, reasonable rates in that. So I'm going to start out by saying that uh, oilseed rape is, is one I'm going to list, and I was debating whether or not to include this because it is certainly becoming more popular. Uh, one of the, to the two driving reasons is oilseed rape will generally survive the winter in a lot of locations. And since it's a brassica, uh, that's a benefit. Um, the radishes kind of came on the scene and really announced their presence as, as being a brassica, but they generally winter kill. 
and then they don't grow in the spring. So some people would desire a brassica to be growing in the spring. So oil seed rape kind of fits that niche. Uh, the seed is uh, very small and, and I will say inexpensive on a per acre basis, so that's really attracting uh, there. So uh, there are now several different uh, varieties out there. Dwarf Essex rape has been kind of the standby, but I know that there's other breeding efforts to maybe uh, other ones that are specifically for the cover crop market. So because they're winter hardy generally and because it's relatively inexpensive, <clears throat> putting a pound or two of oilseed rape with cereal rye uh, or with other in a mix is, is kind of like a no-brainer if this is something that you're going after. Another one I'll mention now, and these are going to become less popular here of what we've known, is lupins. Um, lupins is a, a species that I've, I've read that has probably the most genetic diversity of any single species. There's lupins that, that grow in almost the tundra of northern Canada and northern Alaska. There's, there's some perennial lupins. There's, of course, we're going to just talk about the annual ones, but um, they're used uh, for, for, for wildlife food plots in the south. But what I found to be interesting was lupins was a standby for the cotton rotations in the south in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, I mean, it was just standard practice to plant lupins before cotton. And so they've been tested and approved. Uh, we just need to bring them back into uh, production here. Uh, one of the things I, I um, like about them, they tend to have a strong taproot. Uh, and most of the ones we've been working with will winter kill uh, when you get a few nights in the teens or minus 7 or so uh, Celsius. So they'll last uh, into the fall. They'll take a few hard frosts. They also are a legume, and they produce some nitrogen. I kind of like them because they're unique in that they require a specific inoculant. And to me, that diversity, I don't know what value it has, but its you know I, the way I think about things, that got to be good. So I'll just say if you do have lupins, you do need to get a lupin inoculant. It is not the same as peas or vets or soybeans. Uh, it is different. Um, one of the things maybe I should back up and say, if you're looking into lupins, there are many, I wanted to say, name some of the different ones that are out there that are in the cover crop realm is sweet lupins, bitter lupins, and that basically defines between if you want them to graze or not. So you would want to go with the sweet lupins if it's a grazing situation. So they do have a dual purpose, but if you're grazing, make sure you get the sweet ones. And then there's some blue and white, um, that's that that's pretty much by their flower, uh, and, and both of them work well in a uh, cover crop situation. So one of the challenges of lupins in growing the seed is that it shatters very easily, and that's kind of a barrier because things have to work out well or there's certain regions of the country they need to be grown in so you don't lose the seeds before harvest. So the seed is about the size of a pea, so just to give you, uh, you know, the seeding rates are higher because of that. But lupins are definitely one on my list. Um, another one, and this may be the one I'm most excited about, is fava bean. And I've been to Europe hmm, five or six times now, and uh, you just see fava beans. They're very popular in Europe. Uh, fava beans have historically been used in both human consumption and animal uh, for animal consumption as a protein source. 
the the challenge of a fallow bean is the seed size has been huge, um, almost as large of a, as a small marble in in some uh, varieties, and we're requiring seeding rates by themselves up to like 80 or 100 pounds per acre. Well, that's prohibitive pretty much for cover cropping, and even with our machinery, it's hard to handle. But uh, there has been a response to looking at some of the smaller seeded varieties. And uh, fava beans are known by several different names, uh, bell bean, tick bean, broad bean, horse bean, pigeon bean. All of them have been associated with fava beans. So if you really dig into this, you can, you'll kind of know that they're similar. They're a very good nitrogen producer. Actually, they, they can produce probably about as much nitrogen, and if you get them planted in the fall early enough, uh, they can produce about as much nitrogen as any legume out there. They're an erect plant which I like that for legume because it, it does well in a, in a mix. It doesn't trellis. Uh, to me, I think that's, again, a diversity thing. Um, so, they, and again, they're like the lupins. The Most varieties winter kill with a few nights in the mid-teens. I do know that there was some work in Washington State trying to develop a more winter-hardy fava bean. I know that fava beans are being worked at in, uh, in breeding for use of cover crops. A lot of that has to do with the small-seeded varieties. Uh, so I'm really probably the most excited about the future of what fava beans can do. So the smallest seeds now are still bigger than peas. They're like maybe, um, as they're, and they're still bigger than the largest soybeans. About 1,500 seeds per pound is about where we're at right now to give you an idea on that scale. Uh, but again, I'm really excited about um, the potential of fava beans. And then I want to mention uh, black oats. There are um, a couple different varieties out there. I had tested them several years ago. These originally came from uh, South America, and there's been some research in, uh, around the world on them now. But some of these black oat varieties are very winter hardy. I'm actually working with one that it survived our winter here in southeast Pennsylvania. We had uh, several nights below zero Fahrenheit with bare ground, and they survived. So there's this distinctive, uh, better winter-hardy characteristic. Um, some of the black oats have pretty good forage potential, if you want to double up in that. Uh, but fava beans are starting to, uh, excuse me, uh, um, these black oats are starting to gain in popularity. People like diversity, and even mixing them with like a cereal rar, mixing them with a triticale. Not like it's hugely diverse uh, against those other uh, similar species, but yet it is. So uh, black oats is one that I'm certainly uh, looking into uh, more and more. I, I just like it's kind of another grass niche there. And finally, Phasalia. Phasalia is one that, I, again, I was introduced to in the France. The first time I went to Europe, I saw a field that had been had a long history of tillage, and they had this cover crop plot in there, and it was clear, hands down, where the phasalia was planted, that it did more for the soil aggregation of any other cover crop in that plot. I mean, you could literally see it to the shovelful. And that, that impressed me, and I've seen that time and time again. Phasalia is known for primarily two different aspects. Number one is its ability to aggregate soil. So if you have a poor, run-down, tilled-up, beat-up soil, you want to get phasalia, a heavy dose of phasalia, 
as soon as possible. Um, now, in that, it doesn't like the heat of summer so much. It does well if you can plant early spring, if you have an opportunity for that, and uh, or you can plant it late summer into the fall. That's the best time for making advantage of that of that time. The germination of the seed tends to be low. Uh, that is a weakness that comes along with this with this species. So we always like to plant something else with it in case it fails. And I've seen Phasalia plots that you look across the plot and there's certain sections of the field where 100% grew and others uh, I've seen the extreme where almost zero grew and we can't figure out why. Um, so it's a little finicky in that in that way. Um, but the other thing that it is known for and maybe more well-known for, is its ability to attract insects, beneficial insects, especially bees. And, of course, if that's something you're going after, you're going to have to give it enough time to flower. But I can promise you, if the salia flowers, it will be loaded with buzzing insects. It's just amazing. I've seen it all around the world. And as a pollinator plot, just along woods, woods and stuff like that, it's fantastic. Uh, but it, it can, if you plant it in the spring, usually in eight weeks, you can get it in the ground as soon as possible you'll have flowers and if that's something you're going after that's definitely uh something to think about i like to put phasalia in all my mixes like about one pound of it or half a pound when i'm planting in um in the early fall now it will winter kill again about the same as some of these other ones here temperatures in the in the mid-teens a couple nights or or minus uh five to seven celsius so that just gives you an idea uh, of when it will kill. So um, that's pretty much a roundup of the, the little-used species that I think should become more, more mainstream uh, in the future, and, and certainly all these I have, uh, have been using myself. One of the more interesting points that Steve made, I think, is that different cover crop species bring different benefits to the table, and they sometimes can have a synergistic effect, such as with legumes and grasses, that can give no-tailers more bang for the buck. If you're looking for information to help you adopt and manage cover crops profitably and improve soil health on your own farm, consider what the National No-Tillage Conference has to offer. The National No-Tillage Conference will be held in Indianapolis, Indiana from January 8th to the 11th, 2019. Register online today for just $304 and $85 savings off the full rate. Save even more when you register additional farm family members for just $279. Or complete and return the downloadable registration form by going to notillconference.com. To register by phone or to speak with a National No-Tillage Conference staff member, please call 262-432-0388 or email your questions to nntc at notillfarmer.com. Now let's return to the program as Steve Groff shares some pointers on evaluating the benefits that cover crops are providing to your farm. He'll also reveal what he feels are the best cover crop species to use to sequester and release nutrients for cash crops and he'll provide some advice on when no-tillers can reduce fertilizer inputs with cover crops without hurting cash crops. One of the things that no-tillers obviously want to evaluate is the effect cover crops are having on their soils. 
What should no-tailers look for when they're trying to evaluate the results they're getting? Well, first of all, I'm going to give you an answer you might not expect. Uh, I would say you need to have a shovel, and that's your maybe one of your most important cover crop tools because you need a dig. You don't evaluate cover crops by driving down the field lane looking in, looking out your pickup truck window. Uh, that's part of it, but that's that's not much of it. Uh, you got to get out and dig and look at the soil. And what you want to be looking for is your soil structure. That's something that you can uh, see uh, differences. And if you've uh, never planted like a cereal rye or an annual ryegrass, I can promise you if you have a side-by-side -side, that you will see a soil structure difference uh, when you just dig up the soil and, and look at it. And even even though you may not get like fantastic yield differences, you when you start to see the difference in your soil, you're going to put more effort into making the concept work. So that's why you need to have a shovel so you can see some of those differences in your own fields when you start comparing this. And then, as I alluded to a little earlier, just seeing which cover crops or even which mixes might uh, influence the aggregate stability, the little tiny BB-sized clumps within your soil, and uh, understand what they can do and how they can work. Um, another thing that, that will take a little time, but it's, it's worth it to spend a little time to be able to learn some things is looking at an infiltration rate. It's not hard to get some simple rings or something and, and pound them into the ground and just take equal parts of water and, and, uh, and, and pour them in and just monitor how many seconds it takes to go into the soil versus another practice or your former practice. When you see that working in your own farm, again, it's, it's what will drive you to make this work because you, when you say, when someone says, so what, how much did it rain at your place? And you may say, well, it rained one inch. My question would be, a better question is, well, how much water infiltrated in that last rain? And most farmers will say, well, I don't know. Uh, or they can say, well, I didn't see any runoff, or I saw a lot of runoff, whatever. But this is the problem, again, for new new farmers where they don't understand how soil functions and how it works and how cover crops can help them get more water into their soil. So being able to see that, again, on your own farm is is important. Um, but that's just some of the things, John, I, I thought of off the top of my head there. Uh, just general observations, but have a shovel. And I'll just mention, too, if your agronomist um, that you're working with is not on board with cover crops, you're probably going to be fighting all the time uh, because a lot of the, the agronomists who are who are cautious on cover crops don't want to give you any advice that they're not comfortable with. Um, and I would also say that uh, if your agronomist doesn't have a shovel, you either convince them to get one or fire them. Um, but th this is something I see out there where there's this kind of tug of war, where, and it works both ways. Sometimes the farmer wants cover crops and the agronomist doesn't, or vice versa. But you need to get on the same page, and and that has that's why I mentioned this here. When you're evaluating the effect of cover crops on the field by field basis, you need to be on the same page on what you're looking for. Some no-tillers want to use cover crops to help them reduce fertilizer rates. Mm -hmm. What's your advice about that, and and what process goes into that decision? Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's kind of a hot topic these days. Um, you know, we you you probably all of us have seen articles where you can reduce fertilizer rates with cover crops, and uh, some have said they've they're going without any fertilizer, and it's probably all true. That being said, you you just can't make a blanket statement that you plant cover crops a few years and you're never going to use fertilizer again. And I say that from from a uh, a blanket statement per- perspective because. Uh, I know some people, some farmers, who are doing this very well. The problem is farmers see that, and some farmers think, well, this would be great, this is, this is, this is a huge savings. But in order to get to that point, there's two things that factor in very, very, uh, very much so in this, and one of them is what is your experience and ability and how to do this, and maybe where your farm is located, and what types of soil you have, and what weather you have, and, and all, the geographical component. And and your crop and rotation, I guess you could throw in there as well. So, um, again, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road in cover crop success. You can go to a cover crop conference, and you can hear an amazing uh, re- research results, or anecdotal evidence or farmer evidence uh, on how cover crops are reducing his fertilizer bill. But what really it, it comes down to what will work on your farm. And uh, some of the variables that are, are, I guess you'd say the most obvious is the length of time you're, you have been into this system of cover crops and, and diversity. And the more you can diversify in species, and that's both cash crops and cover crops, the more fertilizer you'll be able to save. And also, the longer you're into this system and a well-managed system, the more fertilizer you're able to save. So the ability to reduce fertilizer comes down to management and then understanding what will work on your farm. So here is, when I say where the farmer needs to embrace a certain amount of research on his own, I've done thousands of fertilizer plots on my farm over the last 10 years, and I have been able to reduce my fertilizer bill uh, about half of what I used to be. I can I can I can document that, but I will tell you that it's not always consistent from year to year, uh, and even from field to field sometimes. I have become comfortable in what I do in, in certain situations about to the degree of fertilizer that I do reduce. Uh, but the bottom line comes down to what's going to work on your farm. So once you get into the system, I'm not recommending you start cutting your fertilizer rates at least very much right away, but feel free to do a couple strips with maybe 20, 40, 50, 60 pounds less of nitrogen if that's what you're looking for. And um, and then, you know, watch your yield monitor and keep track of where that was at and, and see if you start seeing anything. Um, you know, research is not that hard these days. If you have something replicated in the field, like a field length, maybe three times, four times, put some flags out there. You can reference it in your, you know, GPS stuff too, but I would recommend you, you put some flags where you, let's just say you reduce 50 pounds of nitrogen, and then see what the yield monitor says, and and then go from there, and see what you've learned from that. And I've known far, some farmers who have cut back uh, dra- dramatically in in certain soil types in certain areas. But I've also farmers I've, they've called me and they've been like, 
Well, I I heard that we could reduce fertilizer, and I really got uh, I really lost money because my yields went way down. So again, there's that management factor in there that has to be be looked at. And my encouragement, if you're if you're growing cover crops to reduce fertilizer, which can be done, you need to do your own research in your own fields. That's the best advice I can give you. Um, that again, that's in the context that yes, people are doing it. I'm doing it, but I'm not to the point where I'm at zero fertilizer. Um, and when we specifically when we talk about corn, um, and, and again, I I I am I am trying to look at the big picture. Reducing my costs wherever I can, cover crops clearly can point you in that direction. To the degree they do is going to be factored into your ability to manage your geographical area, and then you doing your own research. So that's a little complicated, but um, I, I would just maybe finally add, John, that uh, maybe in summary here, the, the length of time you're into. Uh, uh, the length of time you're into diversity and intensity of cover crops will definitely improve uh, and and so forth. So you can, for instance, with nitrogen, you, you can make some of your nitrogen with cover crops. And, and, and that's, again, you're going to have to figure out how to do that in, y- in your rotation. But uh, no question fertilizer rates can be reduced, but I'm not going to give you a prescription. I'm going to say here's the direction you should go. Increase the intensity of your species, increase the intensity of cover crops, try to have living roots year-round. When you do all that stuff, then start playing around with uh, your own fertilizer uh, rates. And just one final thing, you know, we talk mainly about nitrogen in this, but um, cover crops and no-till tends to uh, make more phosphorus available. I say tends to, so that's something you can uh, use. I was, it was interesting in Australia, some of the soils I was on had pretty high potassium down uh, deep, and they were using cover crops to pull up potassium. Uh, so, so there's, you know, it's again, there's different ways of looking at this uh, fertilizer thing. But, um, yeah, it's a pretty complex subject there, but one that's, that's getting a lot of attention nowadays. I just want people to understand that the reality is what works on your farm is, is what you're going to have to go on. We'd like to sincerely thank Steve for sharing important tips and considerations when it comes to implementing cover crops on a no-till operation. Stay tuned as part two of this podcast series with Steve Groff will hit the airways later this month on April 27th. For those listeners who would like to hear more about successful strategies for no-tilling, please visit notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdoberstein at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with the farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. 
For Steve Groff, Montag Manufacturing, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Senior Editor John Dauberstein. Thank you for listening. 